Thanks for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. Our heart is that everyone would find and experience true sanctuary that's only available in Jesus. We're currently in a series called Break the Soil out of Hosea 10-12, where we're giving the first three weeks of 2024 to prayer and fasting, uh, trying to break the hard soil of our hearts and really seek the Lord in this season. Uh, would love to have you pray with us. Just a quick note, our teaching often does include um, an, some discussion and community response. We do intentionally edit that out of this podcast to preserve uh, the confidentiality in the Sunday experience. So you'll likely not hear the full content or context of the teaching, but still our hope is that this will encourage you and equip you. And really, we're just so honored you're here. All right, here it is. Okay. Um, well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to be able to get the anchor leg of our series of 21 days of prayer and fasting as a church. We've started off the year um, just wanting, really feeling invited by God into a period of, of intentionally seeking God in prayer together and fasting together. We've been journeying through that. Um, our Sunday messages have been reflective of that same journey. And um, for those maybe listening online, my name is Billy. I'm just a part of this church family. have the pleasure of sharing from the word this morning. Uh, we've had essentially now, because it's 21 days, but we've had, this will be our fourth Sunday on the topic. So Tim started us on what I thought was an absolutely outstanding message on the power of fasting. I have not gone back to re-listen to it, but it's like totally in my short list of like, I got to go sit with that again, because it for me was really enlightening um, the way I even thought and considered about like what fasting was. I'd encourage anybody that has questions there. It was um, very well done um, and helpful. Sarah led us in a a wonderful message around the concepts of awe and intimacy and fear of the Lord and how we relate to God um, in some of those ways, and just really was calling us really higher, I'd say, in the way that we interact with God and, and how we can cultivate a sense of awe and a sense of healthy, like right fear and help us think through what that means with the Lord. Um, Tim then last week walked us through becoming a wholehearted church, and not that we would uh, just be a church Um, not only that is seeking God, but one that God is seeking. And it was a really great interplay of of that idea that God's actually seeking something in his church and and that having this connection with being wholehearted and how we can walk that out. And then I get the pleasure to kind of crack the door open, as it were, to the, uh, the concept of identity and what is ultimately a very deep topic and both deep and wide. Um, I will attempt to kind of touch the tip of the iceberg in some ways and just get some language flowing. Some of this, if you've heard me talk before, will sound familiar, but it's a little repackaged and some new things as well. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read, uh, or, or what we'll do this morning is we'll read our, our passage from the Bible. We'll discuss that in groups. We'll share from those groups collectively. I will then share kind of the things that are on my heart, and then we'll have a time of response. So that's where we're headed. The scripture this morning, and maybe if someone wants to, it's on the screen. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It's Mark 12, 28 to 34. So we've been in a series going through Mark, literally verse by verse, as a church. Kind of off and on, we've been picking up and and setting down further things and re-engaging Mark, going through the whole uh, book. Today's, my message today is not really part of that. It just happens to be in Mark. Um, we'll probably eventually make to this point in our Mark series as a church, but I'm using it today in the idea of, of talking through identity and um, really as in terms of how we think about engaging with God. Again, in this context of 21 days of prayer and fasting, um, this personal sense of engaging with God. And I, as you turn, I just want to set the context and then we'll read it and we'll break into groups. So the scene we're about to jump into 
is this is the mark the the verses 28 to 34 are the it's the final discourse of what Mark, the author, has put in sequence of four back-to-back-to-back-to-back discourses where, where the social and political elites are, are coming in in different groups. At each of these engagement, each of these discourses are coming in and asking Jesus questions. And their aim is to try to trip him up or, or have him say something that kind of validates, I'll say, their point of view, their, like, stake in the world as as political and social elites they're wanting him to kind of you know come in and and sort of root for their cause and and there's actually six different groups that are a part of this whole sequence what we're going to look at today is this final single pundit as it were is a scribe and that's a term that we see where what a scribe is and what the scribe would be known to have been is effectively a lawyer in the nation of Israel. They'd be experts in the law. A scribe, scribe, yeah. So so for our language, it would be like lawyer. I think even for them, it would probably be, they would be known as like lawyers, like experts in law. They they would know the law of God that the nation of Israel was seeking to follow. And so these would be like like a lawyer type, you know, very sharp, um, good with arguments, and he, this scribe, has a sort of final question for Jesus in this sequence of questions. And we'll pick up there. Mark 12, 28 to 34. Why don't we go ahead and break up into our groups. And we'll just tackle our same two questions. What does this passage say about God? What does this say about, about people? I think is more like an iceberg than... It is like a simple thing. There's a lot there. Um, as we kind of go through this, I um, am going to attempt to just try to begin to outline the iceberg to help us at least see it in some fashion, knowing that there's so much more that we could cover. Um, I'm going to do it in kind of three, uh, three kind of panels, as it were. Just they'll... Each one will probably leave us wanting, like, well, wait, tell me more. I want to, like, but that's kind of the idea. There's a lot here. We could write um, books about this, but the first I'll do is a personal story. The second is looking at the passage itself and one kind of, a couple portions of it, and then we'll get, we're actually going to engage in the passage together off of some of my words in more of a contemplative prayer fashion together. So um, that's where we're headed. I'm um, going to start, though, before we dive in, just to say the sort of language that our, our English Bibles put off to the side often in your Bibles, if you look at it, is it gives this section the, the title, The Greatest Commandment. And duly noted, because that's what the, he's being asked, what's the greatest commandment? And so I think that because we're... Um, when we're looking at this, that it actually stands in contrast to the greatest problem that we face um, as humans. And because we're, we're focusing on identity this morning, I'm going to phrase that like this. It goes like this. Our identities, when sourced in fear and shame, cannot experience true love. Now, where do I get that statement from the text? And, and is that relevant in 2024? I'll say it again. Our identities, when sourced in fear and shame, cannot experience true love. And I'm going to use the text to walk us through that. Um, now, before we dive right in, I don't you know, need to give a lot of stats for us to just know that in the West and in America mental health and sort of self-esteem and the sense of identity are, um, or at least mental health anyway, are, are in decline. The stats are brutal. Um, I think we all just know that because we experience it for ourselves and we see it in the world around us. But here are just three stats. Today, one-third of all adults in America And half of young adults, 18 to 24, report living with a mental illness, 
feeling of de feeling depressed, anxious, or lonely. So it's a third of all adults and half of the young adult population report mental illness, feelings of depression, anxiousness, and loneliness. Next up, mood disorders such as depression and bipolar disorder drive most hospitalizations for Americans under the age of 45 when adjusted for pregnancy and childbirth. So why are we ending up in the hospital? More than half the time, it's because of mental challenges. As of 2020, suicide is the second leading cause of death for U.S. children ages 10 to 14, preceded only by unintentional in injury. Is that not just like a makes your heart like want to drop? So I think we all kind of already intuitively know that those things are out there, that that's the, the sort of milieu, the, the, the cultural moment that we're in, that w there is a sense of helplessness, and I am so helpless that I'm going to the hospital, that I'm taking my own life. I do not see a way out of this. And I want to just start through a personal story that I think will tie right into our text. And it's this. Some of you have heard portions of this. Um, but two weeks after our firstborn, Amelia, was, was born, I, we were up late in the night. Um, she had been crying off and on, like all night long. We couldn't, uh, my wife Amanda couldn't get her to go down and stay down. You know, but the, as newborns do, they, they want a mother, they want to be able to breastfeed, and there's a lot of comfort that the child derives from that. But it was like after, you know, two weeks of this, basically, we're, I was really just wanting to give her a break. And so I said, hey, let me, you know, it's probably like three in the morning. I'm like, let me just try. Like, I know she doesn't want necessarily me because I don't have the anatomy that you do. And, you know, but let me just try to like go in and and be a you know, gentle, comforting father and see if I can get her to calm down and relax so she can go to sleep. And so, and my wife was exhausted, and so I, I went, and so I, I get Amelia and I put her in my arms in the hopes of doing just that, bringing my sort of fatherly energy, my warmth, talking to her, getting her calmed down, and it was everything but that. It was the exact opposite. It was like, like blood curdling screaming because she wasn't getting what she wanted which was she wanted mom right she wanted mom and then as i'm trying to hold her a like violent resistance of that like just arms legs pushing out you know back arched in revolt like i don't want you and i'm trying to talk i'm trying to talk to her trying to like get, you know be like help her to calm down and it's just not working like I'm just getting totally rejected by her my all my attempts of trying to help her are, are not working and in that moment as that sort of progressed for in that moment for me I started to feel real anger like come up from within my belly like I was really angry I was like oh my gosh like I you know um, not to the point of like injuring the child but it was like a real like I could feel it like it was like a real deep feeling like not just like I'm just angry because someone cut me off. It was like it, way deeper than that. It was like, oh, like something is going on. And it honestly, it scared me. Like in the moment, it, I like had, I put her back down in the crib and I just left because I was like, I literally feel like I could like I could do harm to. I wasn't going to, but like, but I could sense like there's something in it that's like, whoa, that is not like you know. And I see a lot of parents nodding their heads. They understand this. I feel good about that. Um, but it was like, whoa, you know, we were new parents two weeks in, <clears throat> and I then sort of set out to go figure out, like, what was that? Like, what was I feeling? What was I experiencing? And through a lot of really deep investigation, I came to put some language around what actually happened in that moment, because my anger wasn't the deal. My anger was actually pointing at something. So I was feeling that, but actually what it was getting at was something underneath the anger, underneath the surface that was going on for me. And that, as I began to find language, actually over the course of months and even years, was that deep down there, fundamentally, there is a belief that I'm unlovely. That actually, I carried that belief that I'm un unlovely, 
at a fundamental level. And, and secondly, that the person that I am deep down there is a very gentle soul. By the way, I'm just sort of, I would say God has, has created me, knit me together in my mother's womb. There's, I'm actually like gentle. But when this, and so I'll say it this way, if I look out at the scope of my life, I can observe that I've compensated for most of my life, or I'd say probably all of it, against those two things, this idea, this deep belief that I'm unlovely, and this idea that, um, that if I really expose this gentle version of myself, that actually it would potentially be rejected. And so what I've done is become competent, leaned on competency, that that's one thing that the world does value, um, is to be competent, to be able to do things well, to be good at my job, to be a good friend, to be a good leader in the youth group, to be efficient at what I do. And across the board, being, just being competent is something that the world values and rewards when you're able to engage and interact with the world in that way. You get rewarded. People like you. People like having you around. Um, and you get a sense of uh, va- validation. The other thing that I, that I have noticed is that I have a deep suspicion of any sense, if I sense in, a, in an authoritative figure, any sense that they could be manipulating me, there is like an instant, like, like, like almost like a sixth sense against that. And I will resist it. I will just totally resist this. If I, I'm not, not all authority, but just if I sense that kind of authority, where I sense that there, or if there's any sort of injustice that's done, you know, in to me or around me, it's a like, oh, that's that's, and it's it, that's in reaction to really at the fundamental level, my sense of who I am is actually tied to this idea of being actually very gentle, but in this world, I came to the, I've come to the belief that if you are a gentle person, you will get taken advantage of. The world will act, that's so rough will run you over. Like it will take advantage of you and or reject you outright. And so I have built defense mechanisms against being taken advantage of. That's why I can sniff it out so fast, like so fast, you know. And of course, it's, it's mostly when it's, you know, in my context, you know, inconvenient to my worldview that I would be so against injustice. Um, you know, it, 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 it's when it serves me best. I'm not saying that I don't also have a heart that bends toward injustice in general, but it certainly triggers when it's close to home, right? Um, and so the underlying, so, so, or so I've become, as a counterbalance to that, competent and defensive against any sort of being taken advantage of. And where those things have come from, the underlying like well that I've drawn from to create that kind of a persona ultimately is fear and shame. Those are the two wells that I've been fearful that I will be rejected and fearful of being taken advantage of if I'm my true self and shameful that actually who I am, that true self, is not something the world even wants. And so I'm ashamed of that. So I'll counteract and be something else. And so in that moment, going back to my story, what was happening? I have a two-week-old newborn who I love, who I went in to provide a sense from my, I'll say my true self, if I can just use this language, just abstract ideas. It's just helping to carry the idea, you know. I'm trying to provide for her a gentle, loving, warm father figure and what is she doing? She's utterly rejecting that por- portion of, of, of me, right? That she, she's um, not doing it. And second of all, I'm her dad. I should be able to console my own child. I should be able to, like, why can't I help her in this moment? I should be able to. And there's this, like, lack of competence. Like, I can't do it. I literally can't do this thing. And so simultaneously... She is literally blowing up my like false self-identity that, that I hold on to to create a sense of, of being loved in the world. I'm not competent in this moment, and I'm actively being, my gentleness is actively being resisted. And it, 
And, I, and then the anger came, that deep sense. And the reason it was so deep is because it's getting at this, fundam this foundational level of my life that is based in a lie. That's panel number one, just to carry the idea. Does that make sense, the way I've described that? So panel number two, and I, like I said, there's gonna, it'll probably like prompt like, oh, I want to talk more about that, but like, let's just let that sit there. Panel number two, we'll let's look at the scripture and the greatest commandment. So in verse 30, I'm going to go straight to the greatest commandment. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So it's really amazing what Jesus is doing here. He's actually taking two things and putting them together. And they now exist in inside of, I'll say, a single ecosystem. The, it's not one. He even says, like the, the language in his concluding sentence, there is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. They go together. And you almost can't have one without the other. Even though they're two separate ideas, they're really one. And... So let's take that first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your, uh, uh, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, seems straightforward. Seems hard. How do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? I immediately know I'm already failing at that one. Like, all of me, every part of me, loving God. When I read that, enter shame, enter fear, guilt. I can't do this. Not like, not to that degree anyway, maybe some lesser degree, maybe. So I can either live in that fear or, or in shame, or I can just reject the idea of God and his commands altogether, which is probably more of the common approach these days, right? To just, no, I just don't want anything to do with that idea of God and his commands. The problem is that neither living in fear or shame, nor rejecting God and his command solves the underlying problem. They're both not getting rid of the issue. And so we'll come back to that. I want to come back to that verse and we'll talk about how we see a resolution to, to the underlying issue. But before we do, let's move on to the second verse, because as I said, they're all one integrated unit. It says this, you shall love um, your neighbor as yourself. So when I hear that, you should love your neighbor as yourself, what I hear, like the almost audio version of it, sounds like a command to love my neighbor. And, and, of, and I think singing you sort of connected this idea that it is, a command, it is a command to love your neighbor. But the question is, how do I love my neighbor? How am I to do that? In the same way that I love myself. Okay, so the message is, I'm to love myself. Now, growing up in a Christian, for me, a Christian environment my whole life, the idea of like loving yourself was actually equivalent with pride, like don't love yourself, and then therefore that's sinful, right? Or at minimum, it's selfish to just be a lover of self. Like there's even verses in the Bible that say, you know, they're not lovers of God, they're lovers of self. And this is like, poses like a negative statement. How could you be lovers of, your, of self? And that be a, a good thing. Um, but I think when you look at the breadth of scripture, what this is saying is different than that. And even I think those of us, um, regardless of your religious beliefs today, I think many people would agree that it's there's an element of health in loving yourself. Like if you don't love who you are, your, yeah, your mental health can decline if I don't love who that person is. Um, and so at least aspirationally, I think most people would agree with the idea of, of loving um, Self, and so we would agree with Jesus on that point. But it begs a serious question. If I'm to love myself, who am I? What is it that I'm, who is it that I'm actually loving? Who am I, like if I love myself, who am I loving? And there's been a lot of ink spilled over the topic of being, you know, nature, nurture, are we just wound up and sort of, you know, the universe is spinning and we're just eventually going to run out? Or, is, are, so are we just physical? Do we actually have a soul? If we do, how do we define what that soul is? There's a lot there that we could unpack. I'm not going to dive into that right now. What I will do is just list the integrated parts that Jesus states and that is restated uh, in this text, 
which are heart, soul, mind, and strength. So who am I? I have a heart, which is our will, our affections, our desires, it's things like intuition, it's our feelings. I was feeling angry in that moment. My heart, my soul, similar to the heart, and in many ways, actually it's sandwiched even in this passage between, our soul is between our heart and our mind. Like it's, it's this, um, it, it really represents the totality of our being, who we are on the inside. According to the Bible, our soul is actually eternal. And then our mind, we have an intellect, understanding, logic, and reason. That's in our mind. And then strength would be like our physical body. We have a physical element. And this is all, the Bible presents an integrated view of humanity that we're not uh, just one or the other. We exist collectively as a, in this case, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so here's how we act this out in the world. We want to love our neighbor, so we're still on that second passage, the second uh, piece of the, of the command, love your neighbor as yourself. We want to love our neighbor, but our physical reference point, or our, sorry, a reference point for how we do that, it, and I think, Singing, you mentioned a bit of this, it's related to how we love ourselves. Whether we agree with what Jesus is saying in the Bible or not, the idea that's being presented is still true, a big part of how we relate to loving others is tied in with how we view ourselves. We want to love ourselves unconditionally. We really do. But we can't because deep down, all of us, like the story I shared of myself, we have negative beliefs that we hold on to about ourselves. They're really deep down there. And, and, they're, and they're things that we've agreed with. They're negative statements about who we really believe that we are. I'm unlovely, that was mine. I'm ugly, I'm rotten, I'm good for nothing, I'm a disappointment, I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I don't amount to anything. These are the things that we say, we actually agree with these things. And, in, and all of us in our own way have a defense mechanism that's said, okay, I gotta defend against that and I'm gonna project, I'm gonna create and project something New. And so we try to do that through really three channels. We want to be something. We want to have something. We want to feel something. I want to, in this city, I want to be a successful tech founder, right? That's like a big one, right? I want to be a, I want to be a successful, independent, professional woman. I want to be a great mom. These are things we want to be. They're like identity. I, I am a successful tech manager. I am wealthy. I am a great mom. We want to have something. We want to possess a relationship. We want to possess money. We want to possess things. We want to have a vacation home in Tahoe. We want these things. And we want to feel something. We want to connect with other humans. We want to experience great food and these things that sort of fuel our soul and we compete over all of it all of us compete it's like a constant competition across humanity to try to secure these things that will help to placate the what's really going on under the surface which is an unrest that i'm actually fundamentally not lovely for me right that's the one that i Use. We try to use these things to answer that ultimate question, but we all know that it doesn't work. And even the most successful people, as we would say it, as culture would say it, on the planet are still struggling with the same mental health issues. They're in rehab. They're the famous people, the rich people, the politically strong. They're, they're all having issues. They're in infidelity. They, they can't, like, they're not just happy with the relationship that they have. They you go down the list, you know, it's all there. Um, Jim Carrey has been quoted multiple times as saying, I wish everybody could become rich and famous because then they would all know that there's nothing up there. <laughs> you can go find it. Um, and so the, what's interesting then is because we're all living in this paradigm, I, we create 
this, this version of ourselves, we still do it, even though it doesn't work, we still do it, to try to um, attain the thing that deep down we're really looking for. And then um, uh, these, it, it, it's through that paradigm that I'm then trying to love my neighbor. So I've learned to love this false version of myself that's been constructed, right? So that goes back to the like, well, who am I actually loving? It's this false version of me. And, and that's informed how I know how to love my neighbor. And so I actually only know, or you could say anyone would only know how to love their neighbor to the extent you've learned how to love yourself. But if all you know how to do is deal with, with your false, that's the only way I actually fundamentally know how to interact with my neighbor. I can only love them in their false self. This like glittering image that we all try to create right to, to to do that and then furthermore we end up joining groups that align with this version of ourselves that we've created because they're strengthened groups it's a better defect defense mechanism you see this in like you know just the primitive ideas of humanity gathering in packs and hunting in packs because you can defend against the lions and the bears out there right so we do it together it's the same idea we're working together in these like different socially charged groups you pick yours mine, mine in my life has been you know a christian you know religious group where i've had you know affirmation and strength as it were um there's a lot of different kinds of groups but deep down we know that at an individual level we know that deep down there we actually are living in a lie we all actually know this how much we'll admit it is another question, but this version of ourselves that we've put forward is not actually real. And the, this results in a deep-seated inner conflict that ultimately plays itself out in external conflict. I'm not able to unconditionally love myself, but only this false version that I've put forward and you know, in all of this, forget the idea of loving God, the first commandment, right? I'm not able to really even think about accessing that. So what are we to do about this? I want to put forward one little bit that I think gets at what, how Jesus does it, how he's encouraging us to do it. I'm going to pull from one more scripture to do that. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, there's an idea put forward that we, it says this, we only love God because God first loved us. That's the statement. We only love God because God first loved us. We can't, this idea that we can't love God apart from first receiving the love of God. Jesus says to you, I'm the one who created you. I know the true you. I created you, I know everything about your life, and I love you more than you could possibly imagine. So with that 1 John 4.19 in mind, let's revisit the text and see how this ecosystem is supposed to work when it's in healthy sequence and order. I would say that in response to this idea that we only love God because God first loved us, we cannot perform or even attempt to think about the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, until we have received the love of God. That is where it starts. He loves the true you, the real you, and he knows all the things that you've created, and he loves you anyway. And his invitation is experiential by definition. It's not, a, just, it's not simply, again, we're, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not just a mind thing here. This is not just an idea. This is an invitation to a whole being experience of God. And in the West, we love to just play with the idea, the theology of it. Can we state it perfectly? But actually, there's an invitation to experience the whole thing. That scripture begins that command, and Jesus says as much. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one and then the command is love the lord your god with all your mind and strength your neighbor like yourself and this idea of here O israel is taken 
that, that, that whole passage is taken from the Old Testament, from the scriptures, and the root Hebraic word of here is, is the same as the word obey. So it's interesting that we're talking about commands, which have to do with obeying, but it's preceded by a hear, hear, hear what God has to say and obey. This idea that actually God is saying something, and when it says obey, it's really, another way to think about it is agree, like say yes, okay, I will agree with that. And then, yeah, there's actions that flow out of it, but when, um, what, so when we engage with this, we experience, the invitation is really to participate in that, again, because we can't love God until we've experienced his love. So if I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, I got to know who I really am. That's why I started with identity and why I started with the statement that the idea is that if we're living in fear and shame, we can't access this idea because it's false. It's not real. Um, And However, but as we participate in receiving the love of God, it opens up the whole thing. So now I'm able to receive. I'm able to agree with what God says about me that's different from the lies I say about myself and that I have cre- then create my animated self in the world from. Now I'm getting a new message external from me that's from God to say who I am. And when I experience that, actually experience it with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, the byproduct is I'm going to love that God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. When his love begins to penetrate your heart, your emotions, your, your, the, the seat of your emotions, your feelings, and you're experiencing them that way, when it, it impacts your soul, the integrated part of who you are, when it gets to your mind and you're thinking rightly about the things of God, and they make sense in the rational, and my mind is enlightened, and when my body is engaged, I'm actually doing things, and my body is involved, and, and his love is touching those areas in its full measure, I cannot help but in all of those four areas turn back and say, oh my gosh, I love you. Like, I, and, I, and it is a process of learning. It doesn't happen like that. It, it, it's a process that we get invited into to do that. And so well, I kind of find myself in my own notes here. I haven't looked down in a minute. Um, first and foremost, while these are commands, they are fundamentally, and I would say at primary, an invitation. It's an invitation to experience the love of God, the love that God has over you. And the way that we primarily do that is to hear, number one, can I hear what he is saying to me over me that's different from the lies? And number two, to obey or to agree and say, yes, I receive that. That's how we receive. And as the um, scribe concludes, and we'll move into a time of ministry right now, um, just a time of really, I'll say, contemplative prayer we see that the, what the scribe concludes, and Jesus says he concludes rightly, is that the love of God and the love of self and neighbor is much more than all the whole uh, burnt offerings and sacrifices. Strange language for us in today's time, but we can think of offerings and sacrifices essentially as our attempts to get to God and to serve God. For the Israelites, that's what they were. And I think that why Jesus tells the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom, you're not far from the kingdom is because the scribe is getting close to the idea that these commands don't start with our action. It's not our action of, of, of offerings to God. It's they start with God. God is the origin of these things, and he initiates us into a process of receiving. And out from that then flows everything else. As I agree with who he says I am, and I, I am then able to love myself by agreeing with God's love over me, I then just organically explode with love back to God for that gracious love that I'm experiencing. And then 
I automatically want everyone in my world to know that experience, to have that experience, to, to, to have freedom from fear, freedom from shame, that is what is fueling what most of us are walking around animating in the world the way that we live our life. And now I'm able to love my neighbor actually as myself. I can engage my neighbor knowing that there is a true self hidden inside of them and I want them to experience in all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So how do I love myself? By agreeing in my heart, soul, mind, and strength all of God's love for me. Love then shoots back to God. How do I love my neighbor? I want them to know and I want to be a witness to them and try to get at their heart, soul, mind, and strength, the love of God, so they can experience it and on we go. So I think as we conclude here, I'm going to invite us in um, right now to a time of just individual prayer. I will or, uh, uh, facilitate that. I just want to say one last quick thing. Um, restating what I, what, I, what I stated as the greatest problem to which these commands are the greatest solution. I said our identities, when sourced in fear and shame, cannot experience true love. And I think there's some scriptural backing to that idea. In addition to what we've already looked at, even just Zoning in on 1 John 4.18, it says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. We sang about it this morning. This idea that if I'm living a life that's fueled by the well of fear and shame, perfect love drives out fear. It's now the absence of that. And, and there's something new that's coming into place. So we've... Um, done a version of what we're going to do right now before. I've let us in something similar, but we're going to take a little bit more of a um, focused approach to it. What I'd like you to do right now, I'm going to facilitate this, and this will be familiar for those of you that have been in the room and we've done something similar, but again, this will be slightly different. Um, I want to start by inviting you to grab a pen and a note, note card or if you have a journal that you use, that you've brought, feel free to write in that so you have it in your journal. And we're going to engage with these things for a few minutes. I shared my story, which highlighted some of the negative things I've said about myself. I'm unlovely is the chief one. Fundamentally, that's a belief that I've held and I've animated my life in self-defense against that idea. I would like you to, and I'm going to pray a prayer to ask God to help us in this, but I'm going to ask you to write down, and you're going to need to tell the truth here, what are the negative things that you say about yourself? Like I said, I'll pray and invite the Holy Spirit right now, Jesus, Spirit of God, will you come and lead us in this? It's hard unraveling what's really deep down there in our souls, especially in this busy life, but we want to ask you for help. Search us and know us, O oh God. I just want you to reflect on that question. And I'm going to challenge you to form it into an I am statement. Whatever the idea is, as it starts to surface, I want you to write it in an I am. I said, I am unlovely. That was Billy's version. I listed several others earlier in the talk. These might be yours. They might be something different. But to get the idea going, I'm ugly. I'm rotten. I am good for nothing. I am a disappointment. I am stupid. I'm dumb. You might have a lot of thoughts flowing. That's okay. Let them flow. One recurring one for me throughout my life has been that statement, I'm, I'm stupid. Almost always tied to moments of what I felt were in um, uh, lack of competence. Making the wrong turn when I know where to go. Oh, I'm so stupid that inner voice that you say you say these we all say these things to ourselves where does that really come from it's 
it's coming from deep, deep-seated beliefs, many times that we've agreed with from a very young age. Now I want you to, if I can keep this going here, I want you to imagine, again, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our imaginations are a beautiful gift. And I find in a moment like this, it's just super helpful to use the imagination. I don't know all of your backgrounds, so I want to say, I want you to imagine unconditional love. Allow your mind to bring to mind some picture of unconditional love. If unconditional love looked like something, what, what, how does it present itself in your mind? Maybe a present, maybe a light, maybe something more concrete, but how does it present itself to you? The presence of unconditional love as you imagine that. You're standing there with unconditional love. Now I'm going to ask you to do something bold, also in your imagination, still in that imaginatory view of unconditional love. I want you to imagine handing the I am statements or statement to unconditional love. And I want you to imagine unconditional love taking that And I want you to imagine what unconditional love does with that list. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Hear and obey. I I want you to ask, in that same state now, I want you to ask what unconditional love calls you. You've just handed unconditional love the negative I am statements. What does unconditional call you? And I want you to listen to whatever comes straight into your mind. Hear and obey. Say yes. Don't let it go. This is how we receive. We say yes, okay. And I want you to write it down now on your paper as you hear. It could be the simplest thing. It can feel so easy to just wave certain things away because they seem too simple or trivial or like not spiritual enough or like, no, that was just me. Whatever came to your mind, I encourage you to write it down. So this process of hearing, opening ourselves up to hearing, I think is one of the fundamental necessities of the Christian faith. To walk with God, if we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if we're going to have any hope of loving our neighbor as ourselves, instead of loving them in our false constructed self, we have got to hear from God. And this invitation is one, we're doing it in this format because it's just a way to do it as a group. It's not the end all be all. But the encouragement is to listen to what God is saying about you and about your life and to begin to agree and say yes to those things. And then we walk it out in community together. We encourage one another. And this, I believe, is one of of the major ways that we, when we sing, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God, which we sang this morning. This is how that song becomes real. And that my life becomes not as animated by the false self that's rooted in fear, that's sourcing itself in fear, and becomes to where I'm sourcing who I am from who my Creator says that I am. And that unconditional love frees me, actually, in reality, from fear and from shame. It's not to say that I don't fall back into those things, it's a very well-worn path but freedom can begin to come and so I if this morning 
it didn't feel like you quite were able to like get all the you know bullet points of the exercise that's totally okay we're kind of doing it in a group setting and i more and want to encourage you to don't let this idea go of there god did create you and does have things to say to you that are different than the things you've said about yourself your whole life and will free you from those things so um, pray for us and we'll go Heavenly father we are amazed at the mystery of the fact that you love us so much that you're eager first and foremost to pour out your love into us more eager than you are for us to just follow commands when we say that we want when we say that god is more concerned about our hearts than anything else it's this idea that you want us to receive and to experience with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength the love that you have for us. Help us to receive that love. We know that in continually receiving, all the rest of it will flow out from there. Our love for you will begin to make sense. Our love, as we've agreed with it for ourselves, and how we then choose to animate our life in the world based on that will make sense and we can look at our neighbor and know that there's a beautiful created soul of God in them and we can engage them in a way that actually makes sense and that loves them and doesn't actually perpetuate a lie. Help us do this, God. We are so grateful for your presence, your Holy Spirit who helps us in these things the great helper. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. If we can be of any help to you, please don't hesitate to contact us at hello at sanctuarysf.com. We would love to connect. And wherever this finds you, may you experience the grace and peace of God our Father. Father.